Welcome to episode 100. I'm delighted to say with my guest uh, this week, Darius Zikanavakus. Close enough. <laughs> uh, you are the author of, uh, of the book, Human Development and Trauma, How Childhood Shapes Us Into Who We Are as Adults. You also have the blog, Self Archaeology, which I've been following for a number of years, and, and the, uh, the Self-Work Starter Give, uh, Self-Work self Starter Kit, which you uh, give out to um, members of, of your blog. Darius, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. And congratulations on your 100th episode. Thank you very much. Uh, and let's start with yeah, the title of your blog, Self-Archaeology. What do you mean by that? And where did it all start for you? Well, it's just a poetic way of saying that self-work is a complicated process. So probably your listeners are familiar with uh, the concept of self-work or healing or self-development, stuff like that. So... I decided to call it self-archaeology self refers to me, self, myself, and archaeology is a process that seemed to me is similar to what we go through when we start working on ourselves. So we dig deep to find something that is unresolved in us, and then we have to figure out what it is we have to brush it off and see what it is what it means and then eventually we hopefully figure it out and then we can kind of show it as a gift to the world wow okay so there's probably a a, a lot in there but what i'll take away is is figuring it out so did you did you have something to to figure out uh, is that what is is that where this started for you? Well, the name is not so much related to my particular process that I one day woke up and decided that I need to dig into I don't know my my unconsciousness and do this archaeological process. It's just a metaphor that I used for my website. But for me personally, I always kind of well, not always. I guess it started in my early teenage years. I kind of looked around and I saw that there's something wrong with society. Like maybe I messed up, I have something going on for me, but like the society, the world is, there's something going on in there. There's people who are having children who don't really love their children and abuse their children and uh, people who abuse each other and there's war and all sorts of horrible things. And I wanted to know what's going on. Why is this the case? So I kind of started working on myself first, but also observing society and trying to figure out what's going on between people. And at the time, I didn't know psychology and sociology and disciplines like that. But in my own way, I started learning about these things. And uh, later, in maybe my 20s, I found authors like Alice Miller and Daniel Mackler and other people who specifically talk about childhood trauma and connect the dysfunction in the world to childhood trauma and child abuse and stuff like that. So it kind of validated what I already in instinctually found out myself and it validated that 
this is what's going on. This explains what's going on in the world. This explains why I feel how I feel. And this helps me overcome this. Does that make sense? Yeah. And, and interesting that you started out that, that global perspective. I mean, a lot of people who get into this work, and certainly myself, I include myself in this, it's with some dysfunction I see in myself, but it sounds to me like it started for you with society. And were there, were there specifics you remember about the society remind you that around you that had you start? Um, I remember as a child, I, I wanted to be honest. And I noticed that a lot of people, including my peers, but also parents and other authority figures are just not very honest. And not always that they necessarily create a scheme or, or, or a lie consciously, but just unconsciously, they just are disconnected from what's going on in them and in other people. And they just lie, but also uh, stuff like betrayal or just hurting other people deliberately or uh, just unconsciously. And I wanted to know what's going on. Why is this the case? And uh, as a child, I noticed that I feel a lot of pain and I also looked around and no, it's not just me. In school, for example, there's a lot of bullying and uh, teachers uh, mistreating children and children mistreating each other. And there's all sorts of horrible dynamics going on. And I looked around and noticed that and told myself that, no, this is not right. This is something that I need to figure out why this is the case and uh, figure out why I feel how I feel and why other people feel how they feel. Right. And was there like a particular teacher who personified this or an authority figure that? I guess in general, just the whole institution of schooling. I'm not very fond of it. I like learning, obviously, but I don't like the, the institution of, of school as it is in our society today. Right. And, so and... it wasn't like one, one person who broke me and then I became this person who I am today. It's just like in general, a lot of factors that uh, indicated that society is messed up but also I looked in myself like okay what's going on why do I feel pain and eventually I had to recognize that I'm not inherently like a broken person I wasn't born like that and then later in in my professional life I of course worked with people and I noticed that nobody's born like that nobody's born like hurt or depressed or angry or sad everyone's kind of is a product of their environment to kind of simplify it right and and this pain you found in in yourself what you started to to feel into the or to, or to identify this in your late teens early 20s is that is that when this started with yourself uh, consciously, yes. Right. I think it, it started around that time. And then I, uh, you know this, but maybe your listeners don't. I'm from Lithuania. You can hear the accent, <laughs> but I'm from Lithuania. So Lithuania is a small country nearby Poland and Russia and all these uh, Eastern European countries. And as you can imagine, a post-Soviet country is not the healthiest country. It's not the worst country, but it's not the healthiest country either. So... Uh, I noticed that people are very kind of depressed and, and suspicious and mean and angry. And even now I'm back from Canada for maybe almost a year now. And I see the contrast, uh, how people are kind of 
different here. So growing up in that environment kind of uh, maybe helped me understand society a little better uh, versus, I don't know, just like with abuse in general, like if somebody is uh, traumatized in very severe ways, uh, we usually recognize that, for example, sexual abuse, like rape is abuse where beatings is abuse, but, uh, for example, emotional neglect is not so evident. It's much harder to resolve something that stems from neglect or, or fear of abandonment versus if your father beats you every day. So the same is on the societal level. Like if you see a lot of broken, miserable, angry people, it's more evident that something's wrong versus, I don't know, people in Canada who are kind of smiley and chatty, but then deep down they're really miserable and upset and uh, dysfunctional, manipulative and stuff like that. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> Although you're painting a pretty bleak picture, but I guess there's, it's prevalent, <laughs> right? It's prevalent. Depression is certainly true. It's certainly true, isn't it? Um, in our societies. I'm interested in your pain. Like, so that's, so what, what, how did you approach that? Right. Well, I mean, when that started for you, can I just give a quick disclaimer? Yes. Um, okay, so it might seem that I'm just like a very hurt person from a very dysfunctional place, and that's why I see the world that way. For those who don't know me, for those who follow me for years, they know the context of this, that this is just how the world is. If you look into it deeper, if it's not your first day doing this stuff. So I'm kind of skipping a lot of steps so for a new listener, it might seem kind of oh, weird. Weird. What, what is this guy talking about? But for those who actually looked into it, it's kind of evident that, okay, this is actually what is going on. And even countries like Canada and Denmark and more evolved countries, there's a lot of trauma in there too. So going back to your question, could you just quickly summarize yeah so I'm, I'm just interested in that proce process for you uh, i mean because yeah. I'm, I'm, so, I'm somewhat contrasting it to my own experiences as sort of in my late teens and early 20s i mean for me it was just hedonism you know there was no there was no sense of me having the kind of awareness that would lead me to start exploring my own deep pain i mean that was just it wouldn't have even crossed you know my mind at that stage so it's, so it's interesting for me to think that you'd you'd already started on that journey um, relatively young and 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 how that worked for you like how 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 did you start that i th i was on a different podcast like three weeks ago i mentioned this in our uh, pre-call uh, chat uh, and we talked about this in that podcast that uh, it was kind of evident to me when i started working on this that I have to be authentic. I have to be honest. I, if I see that something's not right, if I don't have to do something, my instinct was to, to sounds rebellious, like I'm going against the stream, but that wasn't the case. I, I just wanted to be authentic. I just wanted to be honest. So if I see some sort of a tradition or something that you need to do necessarily for example you need to i don't know visit your parents or call this person or uh do this particular thing dress a certain way on a certain holiday stuff like that like uh, things that are presumed that you need to do necessarily 
even though they don't make sense. I wanted to not do these things. And I tried not to do these things as much as I could, given my environment. And then going deeper, I wanted to explore things like family dynamics. Why do children get abused so much? What is abuse? What is trauma? How do we define those things? How do these things affect our life later? And when you actually, now you can kind of maybe remember your school because when we're in there, we don't think about it as much. For example, okay, this one guy that you sat with in third grade, if you think about him, you probably will remember certain things that would indicate that there's something going on in there. Maybe he mentioned that his father was drinking last night or maybe his mother was yelling or something like that. And things like that you you observe either consciously or unconsciously. And if you're honest with yourself, if you are observant, you can see that, okay, these things matter. It's not just like people do stuff and then things happen and I don't know, it's just war one day or people just rape each other. There is an explanation for all of this and I wanted to know that. And when I became more, I guess, mature, um, I delved into that versus other people I don't know. Uh, trying to dissociate from it. And I understand why people do it. And mm. I dissociate it from, from other things, from my pain, from my emotions and other ways. But I also wanted consciously to understand why this is the case. Why is the world, why is my environment, why is the world in general that way? Right. And, and did you find yourself looking at instances where you you personally were traumatized by, by experiences. Did, did you start to get into that then or did that come later? When I was born, my father left the family. So I was raised by my mom and I have a, an older brother. He's a seven year older brother. And he was kind of like a father figure to me in many ways. My mom projected a lot of uh, dynamics with her past husband onto my brother so he was kind of perceived as the father in the family that was very unfair to him and I was more like a golden child in that relationship where my mom kind of one might say loved me more but she kind of didn't love me in many ways but I guess gave me some things that my brother for example didn't have uh in my environment, for example, a lot of children came from a single parent home. So in that sense, it was normal. And later I talked to other people from all over the world. A lot of people have experienced similar things. So in that sense, I mean, it was a normal childhood. Again, I wasn't like beaten or raped routinely. But for example, I was a very lonely child. Uh, later, even in life, when I talked about uh, starting to work on myself, I didn't have anybody that I could share this with or talk about. A lot of people that I worked with had a similar experience that they felt very lonely growing up, even though they say, well, my mom was there, my dad was there, I had siblings, but I didn't feel connected to anybody. I felt incredibly lonely. I felt hurt. I felt a lot of betrayal from my parents. I went through all of this too, even though, again, it doesn't seem incredibly juicy, but it's just a normal childhood that a lot of people go through. And that's why I wanted to explicitly recognize that there's a lot of 
pain that children feel growing up and it is normalized in our society. People don't want to talk about it. People don't recognize it as such. Uh, yeah, hopefully that answers your question. Yeah, no. Uh, well, I have some empathy for that. I mean, yeah, not having your father around and seeing that dynamic between your mother and brother <laughs> and feeling lonely. Yeah. I think it's useful to talk about what trauma actually is because uh, we use this word a lot already and I don't know if all of your listeners see it the same way. So when a parent has a child, parents have certain responsibilities. So their main responsibilities are to, one, to recognize a child's needs because every child has needs. I talk about it in my book. Uh, and the second is to accurately meet those needs. So a lot of parents in many ways fail to even uh, accomplish the first step. So they don't accurately recognize the child's needs, especially if the child is small. So a small child is just crying and you don't know what that means. And I know from a parent that it can be damn difficult sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, But a lot of parents just deliberately ignore it or just leave the child crying. And in that moment, the child has a need. They're trying to communicate the best that they can. And if you just leave the child crying, then those needs are not met and it has an effect later in life. Maybe this child now has the fear of abandonment because they wanted a hug or they wanted, I don't know, beat or something like that. And uh, the parent didn't recognize or recognize, but didn't meet that need. And there's an effect of that. So all these negative effects that a child experiences when growing up can be called trauma or sometimes micro trauma. I don't like that term necessarily, but I kind of use it in quotes that sometimes people minimize trauma and say, oh, this is not a big deal. This is just something that happened. So micro traumas, small things that happen, but actually they're not small for a child because a child is, you know, a child, I don't know, drops a lollipop or something. For a, for an adult, it's, yeah, it's not a big deal. For a child, it's a big deal. For them, there's a lot of emotion and everything else going on. So things that might appear small for an adult can be very traumatic for a child. So negative consequences of one's environment can be called trauma. It's kind of a simplification, but I think you know what I mean. Right. But, and, but there's also an important dynamic here. It's, it's not simply something being, well, maybe it is just being negative and a negative experience, but it sounds like there's an important factor in this is about a need not being met. Yes. Uh, yeah. Because cause certainly as I understand traumatization, it's one thing to experience something negatively whilst you're also being empathized with. Oh, of course. So, 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 example, so, so, so mm-hmm. just to take the lollipop example, there's mm-hmm. a big difference between me dropping a lollipop and crying about it. Yes. And my caregivers saying, forget about the lollipop. Yes. Uh, and your caregivers give a saying, oh, you know, I can see that must be really upsetting for you. I can understand why you're crying. Let me take the lollipop and clean it. And here it is back again. Now, both negative experiences, of course, but one 
potentially much more traumatizing than the other. Yeah, I can even give a clearer example. So for example, a child falls down and hurts their knee or something. They cry. The process itself is not necessarily traumatic. It could be maybe if it's a big physical trauma and whatever, but if they just fall down and they feel pain, that's in itself is not necessarily traumatic. But what happens after if the parent, I don't know, blames the child, oh, you're so careless and you're a bad person, blah, 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 and they scold the child or beat them or whatever. That is what's traumatic or even a more subtle form of it. Like, as you said, they don't give comfort to the child. That could be traumatic. But if the caregiver helps the child to deal with a painful experience, that's not traumatic. That's actually what the child needs in the moment. And you talk in the book about the, the three A's, right? Would you like to, I think I thought that was uh, useful for people to understand in this context. Uh, you mean the attunement, uh, attachment, and what's your, what's your third A? Now it's going from me. Um, attention yes so when a child is growing up they don't have a sense of self per se as you know the smaller the child the less self-aware they are there's a certain period in time where they look at the mirror and they can consciously recognize this is me before that they can't it's just they're kind of just flopping and and the universe but at a certain time they realize okay this is me i'm alive this is what's going on i'm i'm self-conscious to a certain degree and over time this sense of self uh, becomes stronger if they're not traumatized so in order to get that sense of self to recognize their emotions to recognize their thoughts to recognize their needs they need certain things the way how they can get that is for parents, for example, to mirror them. So mirroring means you kind of reflect back how the child feels. It's like a mirror. You look in the mirror and you see yourself and you can say, okay, this is my face. I have a pimple or something. You can see what's going on with you. Emotionally, it's the same thing, but a child can't see their emotions. So the parent needs to be that mirror. So if a child is sad, the parent can recognize the sadness and say, oh, I, I, I sense that you're sad, you're crying, what's going on, tell me about it. So the child feels validated, they understand what's going on with them, and they can understand themselves better. If that doesn't happen, or the opposite, if the child gets invalidated, if the parent says, no, you have nothing to cry about, or you shouldn't be sad, and stuff like that, the child gets invalidated, the child's sense of self gets skewed they get confused they don't understand what's going on and they 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 get upset about their emotions or uh, repress them and from that stems a lot of pain and a lot of trauma right yeah um and that's a really important i suppose dynamic here isn't it because i mean in the title of your book and how this shapes us how childhood shapes us into who we are as adults, um, this suppression or repression of those feelings uh, of hurt, where the, a need isn't met in the moment, don't go away, right? We carry them with us into adulthood and they shape who we are as adults. Uh, sure. So when a child experiences trauma, they, I'm kind of simplifying, but to, to make it uh, shorter. So, a child experiences trauma or micro trauma, whatever we want to define it as, but uh, 
a painful experience. And oftentimes they're not allowed to feel their emotions or they get invalidated or basically it doesn't get resolved. So they have all this pain that they don't know how to deal with. And a lot of it is unconscious. It's not like they consciously process it and make a conscious decision to do this or that, but unconsciously they have to somehow cope with it. And our psyche is developed that way that uh, what happens is dissociation. So we split from that experience. For example, psychologists talk about it often. So a child invents some sort of uh, a different world where their parent is a good parent in that instance, because you can't accept that, oh, my mom is being bad at the moment. My mom is hurting me because you need that parent to survive. Without mom, you, without dad, you can't even survive in the world. And again, it's not conscious that the child recognizes that it's very primal and primitive in their brain. And they kind of recognize, okay, this is, I need to survive in this world. And for that, I need my mom, but mom is being hurtful. And the child can't just, what an animal does in, in nature, they can either fight or they can run away if there's a danger. A child can do any of those things because they're small and they're dependent on the person that is hurting them in that moment. So they have to somehow live with that experience. And to live with that experience means dissociating, splitting from that emotional experience that happened from that, I guess, physical experience or that situation. So trauma can be defined like Gabor Mate's explanation. Uh, and other people talked about it uh, too. I'm paraphrasing, but the point being that uh, trauma is not so much what happened or not. It's not only what happened, but also what happened after that happened. So the emotional effects of that uh, is what is traumatic. So a child can't bear this reality that my mom is hurting me. So they have to split from that, create a different world where their mom is good and repress all those emotions and survive in that environment where it's hurtful. And again, trauma is not just a one-time event that happens. Often people misunderstand that trauma is just something that happened once or twice or like a very specific event, like you got raped or beaten or, I don't know, bullied in school. No, trauma can be uh, an environment, a background. Sometimes children get up in the morning and they feel miserable. Nothing's going on in that moment necessarily, but they know their relationship with their parents that it's hurtful or they know that they have to go to school and that's a horrible environment or go to church or wherever their peers maybe are making fun of them or something like that. I don't know. There could be many traumatic experiences, but uh, again, what happens after trauma, what happens being in a certain environment emotionally, that can be traumatic in itself. And again, that happens usually chronically. So you live in that emotional environment for years. It's not like, okay, after two days, it's gone. You have to live with your parents for years if they're not good parents or if they hurt you in certain ways consistently, then you have to endure years in that environment. And that in itself is traumatic, even though, Moment in that moment, there's no trauma that you can pinpoint and say, okay, this person is beating me. It's just being in an environment where you've been beaten before. That's traumatic. Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 So it's, it's, it's yeah, the, the, the common perception of trauma is it's these major events. Yes. Uh, and of course, it's, uh, it can be much more subtle than that. 
and indeed sometimes it's not it's not the presence of some factor right the presence of some um, painful factor in one's life it's the absence of something nurturing sure right uh, that's and, why uh, alice miller just very briefly that's why alice miller talks about the concept of enlightened witness you've probably heard of it before. Yes, like yeah. for a person to heal they need to meet at least one person who would validate their painful experiences if that doesn't happen usually the, the person uh can't heal there's there's no nurturance that they can get from from elsewhere and that's why you asked me before that's why i said that uh when I found Alice Miller and Daniel Mackler and other people's work, people who talk about trauma and society and dysfunction in society, I said it felt validating. It validated my perception, my insight. But before that, I was kind of, I knew that, but it was kind of difficult to, to accept, not to accept that, but uh, again, I needed validation. I needed that enlightened witness to say, yeah, your perception, your insight, your instincts, they're right. You're on the right track. Good job. That's necessary for a person to heal. That's why we go to therapy. One of the reasons, there's many reasons to go to therapy, but that's one of the reasons to get validation, to get uh, a nurturing environment for you to open up to do that self-archaeological process where you can explore your subconscious and uh, find out what you feel, what your needs were, and uh, why you have the problems that you have. Yes. Um, so they were your proxy enlightened witnesses uh, initially. I would say it's everybody's. Like, uh, sure, having a, a person in a live environment helps. And I had therapists before. It's not like I just read Alice Miller and got result. But uh, that can be that enlightened witness to authors mm. that we... I've yeah. had a lot of feedback from people saying that I'm not in those words. They didn't say, oh, I guess actually some people said that I'm their enlightened witness, but other people said it indirectly. And I've heard from other therapists the same story too, that clients or other people who read their works give them feedback that, oh, I found your work and it validated my experiences and it helped me tremendously in my healing process. And that was so valuable. So yeah. Even if you never interacted with somebody, that person or their work at least, their public persona even, can be very nurturing sometimes. Yeah, certainly one of the John Bradshaw was an early author sure. for me, who uh, who I suppose was one of my first enlightened witnesses and and validated my experiences, and I think and also validated this intuition in me that it was powerful for me to go back and revisit my early experiences when the whole society is telling you move on leave the past in the past yes uh in fact in fact i saw a post just this morning a guy was saying going to therapy lame go to the gym <laughs> you know and and right. for people to say no avoiding your past is lame <laughs> right sure that is what i needed in those early, early days. but see i talked about like dysfunctional societies and i gave examples of war and i don't know bullying and stuff like that stuff like this that you mentioned that's dysfunction if i have a lot of pain and i need to heal and people are saying no you should move on they're consistently being your 
I guess, unenlightened witnesses, and you get that every day, versus getting that enlightened witness. That's kind of what one may call re-traumatization even. If you get these messages and you're like tremendously hurt, okay, if you have a few friends, some people have a few friends and uh, they're not as affected. They have some tools, they have some resources, whatever. It's painful to live in that society, but overall they have at least something. But a lot of people don't. You've you've probably seen the Joker or... Uh, I haven't actually, hurt. maybe I should. Oh, okay. Yeah. Or heard about incels or other yes, isolated in... people. Mm. So a lot of people are incredibly lonely. And on top of that, they get these messages that, no, healing is lame. I haven't heard this before, but you've said it. Healing is lame. I heard it say in different ways, but the message is the same. Like, you shouldn't do this. It's kind of unnecessary or I don't know, you're wasting your time or wasting your resources. Just live your life, forgive and forget and move on and just lift bro or something. I don't know what people say, but people invent all sorts of excuses not to work on themselves. And of course, our society adds to that per se, because uh, healing has a strong stigma. For example, the same, the same, the, the, the same case that you gave. Going to the gym, why is it acceptable to work on your physical body or go to a doctor? People encourage you, if you feel sick, go to the doctor. If you want to improve your physical health, go to a nutrition, to dietitian, or to a physical trainer, whatever, just work on yourself. But if it's your mental problems, the opposite is the case. They say, don't do this. They discourage you. Imagine living in a society where people encourage each other. They're supportive of each other in the sense that if you have problems, hey, let's talk about our problems. Hey, let's go to a therapist. Uh, everyone goes to a therapist. Everyone journals. Everyone talks to each other openly about their feelings and uh, shows empathy to each other and lifts each other up and just living in a compassionate environment. That's what we need to heal, but we get the opposite of that. And that's why it's so difficult to heal for people. That's why we hear those messages. Sure, a lot of people are grifters and they want to sell you their product and say, no, in order to be happy, you need to buy this product versus working on yourself for 10 years. That's not very presentable. That's not very marketable. You need to give a simple and quick solution. You've heard this before. People look for quick solutions. Sometimes people contact me. And even in the pre-interview, we talked about it and you said that... Uh, Okay, let's talk about solutions. Problems, problems, they're kind of painful. Uh, maybe we can kind of put it in a different uh, wording or whatever, not make it too painful, but let's talk about solutions. People are quick to jump to solutions, and I understand that. It's very natural for human beings to look for the shortest path possible, but unfortunately, there are no quick solutions. Yeah, and I, and I think that's where... Quickly. If I was to give the the naysayers their due when they say don't 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 open up that can of worms don't don't go back to the past, I think there's a grain of wisdom in that because certainly from my own experience it is has been for me highly disruptive to do it right sure um, I've spent months and months barely functional because of the work I've needed to do now the rewards have been enormous but I can certainly imagine context where that level of disruption to my psyche and to my ability to function in the world could have actually been, you know, somewhat risky for me to do. 
So I do wonder if there's some kind of historic rationale for people avoiding this, because in certain maybe periods of history or in certain contexts for people to do this type of work may have actually come with significant risks. I mean, that's a kind of a pet, a pet theory, if you like, but it's something I, I, I do consider. Well, I mean, if we live in a society where healing is discouraged, then, I mean, there are social consequences for that. You can't talk to anybody about it unless you know, like a friend, again, you have friends who do this and they're encouraging, but you can't just go outside and say, hey, I'm going to therapy. Maybe in, I don't know, again, Canada and Denmark or other uh, more Western countries, it's more acceptable these days, but still I've I've worked with many people from all sorts of environments and the general stigma is there that it's not, it's not sexy to do it. Let's put it this way. Yeah. It reminds so, me of a, of a flatmate I had once in London and uh, we were having friends around for dinner and I had my books on the wall and some of them were therapy books and he saw yeah. the therapy books out of the bookshelf before people arrived for dinner. Oh no. <laughs> yeah. yeah so, you're right. you know, living in this environment is very discouraging. Yeah. So it's painful. So people want to avoid it. And then on a personal level, it changes a lot. Let's say, again, you're very isolated. You don't have friends or you have a lot of problems. And then you figure out that maybe your mom didn't love you as much as she should have. And you encounter all this pain. And she's the only contact that you have in life. What do you do? That's a big question that people ask me and other people. That uh, How do I improve my relationship with my parents? I realize they hurt me and I realize they still hurt me as an adult right now. The, the dynamic is dysfunctional. But how do I have, they don't put it this way, but basically they, want, they still want loving parents and everyone wants to have loving parents. But sometimes we have to accept that maybe the relationship is as it is and the only way to improve it is to make it healthier. Healthier doesn't necessarily mean closer. It just means healthier. Uh, putting firmer boundaries. Um, not participating in unhealthy dynamics. Not giving in. Standing up for yourself. Um, taking distance sometimes. Um, being honest with them. When you're displeased with something, when they're crossing your boundaries or, or breaking your boundaries or violating your boundaries. Uh, these things are painful to do. A lot of people don't want to do it. And for a lot of people, it's very challenging to question those relationships. And then again, you do that for yourself, but then you encounter other people. And then they ask, what's your relationship with your mom? What's your relationship with your dad? And if it's not a great relationship, it's problematic to talk about it with other people. So there are all these consequences or all these ripple effects that affect all areas of your life you go to work then you have to talk to people there and if people most people are not in environments where healing is acceptable or working on yourself is acceptable or you have to talk about it if you want to be honest or stay kind of uh, fake again talking about parental relationships or child rearing with people that's very tricky to do because people again a society don't recognize childhood trauma or child pain in general and that's how it affects all areas of your life so these are all the effects that you get when you start healing so to answer your question it's painful on 
so many levels that most people just decide not to do it. And as a result, I'm miserable, but they don't know that at the time. They look for, everyone looks for, so everyone feels a certain level of pain and everyone is looking for tools how to make that pain more bearable. And in their mind, avoiding what seems to be bigger pain, that makes sense. I don't want to feel more pain. I'm already in pain. But sometimes you need that momentary pain to feel better in the long term. That's why we go to dentists. That's not that's not very pleasant to get your teeth drilled. But I mean, to feel better, you need to do it. The same as with therapy. The same as with, again, exercising with many things in life. So if people could see healing, see self-work that way, that would help them understand that, okay, this is painful, of course, and these are very serious consequences or or, uh, problems that I will encounter. But this will make me happier. Again, in the very beginning, when we talked about the metaphor of self-archaeology, at the end, I said, okay, at first, it's very confusing. You don't know what it is. You're brush it off and what is this artifact what does it mean what is this and eventually figure it out okay this is what it means you decipher it and then you can show it to the world you understand it and it becomes a gift it's a good thing at the end you found it you know what it means you can show it to the world it's a good thing and the same is with healing you work on yourself you become a healthier person you affect others that you love as a parent i've Sometimes people think that since I talk so much about childhood trauma, which involves uh, child abuse, that I hate parents or something like that. But a lot of my followers are parents. A lot of my clients are parents. And I get a lot of messages saying that your work helped me become a better parent. So working on yourself can improve since you develop more empathy for yourself as a child. You automatically empathize with children in general, and you empathize with inner children of grown-ups. You recognize their pain. You can be a better husband. You can be a better wife. You can be a better parent. You can be a better friend. You can be a better co-worker. It, again, affects all areas in your life in a positive way, too. But in order to get that there, you have to work on yourself, which is, in the beginning, very painful. Yeah, and I think I think that's right. And I, I mean, I know this from my own experience because it, it, it's interesting to me that you got into this work so early. All of my twenties, I, you know, there's this choice you make: do I live with chronic suffering and all of the, certainly for me, all of the mess of the coping mechanisms that I use to to sort of take the edge off that suffering, or do I experience this acute pain, um, which will ultimately alleviate that suffering? And I made the choice to stay in the suffering, you know, for and how conscious I was of this, I guess, is debatable. But, but I'm sure for, it for a decade or more, right, before I started opening up John Bradshaw or any of these other books. But I'm sure it helped to figure out or to find that there are other people who are doing the same thing, at least knowing one person, again, going back to Enlightened Witness or... Oh, of course. Indirect yeah. validation that, okay, I'm... Because if it was only you... <sighs> That's a harder decision to know that nobody's doing it and there are no found cases, no examples of anybody who did this. To make that decision, 
I don't know. It's tough. I don't know. If yeah, exactly. Do that. Which is why we can be so ad, you know, admiring of somebody like Alice Miller, who was starting. So, so for those who don't know, yeah, a very prominent Swiss, uh, I suppose, what, psychiatrist and originally or psychologist and psychologist, yeah, psychologist, yeah, yeah and uh, who, who's wrote very eloquently on trauma. And yeah, she was doing it. Well, even Freud, right? I suppose early Freud, right? He he really started to open this up, yeah, before he kind of went a bit. Yeah, so it's a long process. and But again, we talked a lot about how painful it is and how miserable everything is and blah, blah, blah. That's why I wanted to say, no, it's, it's not that grim. I mean, part of it is very grim, but also there's light at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> it can get better. Like if we as society worked on ourselves on a broader level, the world would be a better place. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, and sometimes I have hope for that and, and other days I don't, right? Yeah, sure. I mean, that's I, the hope, how it will be realistically. I mean, time will tell, but that's the hope that we can have. And again, we can still work on ourselves individually, even if the society doesn't work on itself uh, on a broader uh, scale. Well, but I think the one... so. I, one of the things I, where I think there is perhaps more progress is recognizing what abuse is and recognize it has this negative impact on people which lasts way into adulthood. So even if people aren't prepared to do the work on themselves, I do think that over time, and in fact, you make this point in your book, that child rearing, child rearing practices are generally improving. Oh, definitely. Um, when I started my work, I mean professional work at first i started it in lithuanian i barely do anything in lithuanian i do most of my work in english now but when i started in lithuanian there were no tools there were no people talking about it in my native language so i pretty much started by myself and my first blog post had like four likes or something like that nobody really knew about it nobody looked into it nobody really cared about it and then gradually uh people started uh, translating works like uh, Alice Miller's books and uh, Susan Forward's books and other people who talk about childhood trauma. Um, now, way more people are talking about the effects of child abuse and the effects of trauma and generally about developmental psychology, both in English and in smaller languages. Overall, there's way more awareness right now. But even 10 years ago when I started, it was uh, not as hopeful as it is right now. Yeah. Um, so that's... And uh, of course, we have more laws that prohibit uh, child beatings and stuff like that. How effective it is is one question. But still, if there's a law prohibiting it, there's still a subtle message that, okay, maybe it's not good to do it. Maybe you will still do it, uh, whatever. But as a society, we just don't do it. I think it's a positive change. Yeah, in, sp in, in spite of some, as you say, b b bad science of, uh, uh, of people finding that actually beating kids is, is good for them in the long term. And... I mean, some people argue that, but there's no evidence of that. And of course, people who do that probably don't care about evidence, but, you know, it's still mm -hmm. good to recognize on a societal level that, hey, we don't beat children. That's not, that's not helpful to the child. Yeah. But again, if you work on yourself, if you resolve your traumas, if you recognize your own pain, 
I don't think it's possible to beat a child when you're at that stage. I would say it's impossible. I can't conceive beating a child knowing what I know today. Maybe, I don't know, when I was five, but now, I mean, why would you be the small, small little person? It's insane. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that shifted for me, and, and in fact, reading your book um, was interesting. Um, that as a parent now, I do have a lot, obviously, I have an empathy for other parents, and I see myself. Sure. That when I was reading this material pre-being a parent, it all made sense. You know, we shouldn't hit people, we should be nurturing, we should always be identifying, you know, all of it made complete sense. Now, as a parent, I can say that, this is a hell of a lot harder to do when you're sleep deprived. When oh, you, I understand. You know, when you've had, uh, you know, uh, extremely stressful interactions with multiple children over the course of maybe 18, 20 hours, it, it can be very hard to maintain self-control in a way that allows me to continue to bring empathy and nurture yes. to the dynamic. Um, which is a very euphemistic say, way of saying it's, it can sometimes be extremely difficult to be a good parent. Yes. And I mean, I don't know if I say this in my book, but I've mentioned this many times. Parenting is the hardest task that one can take upon. That's the biggest responsibility that you can ever have. And it's incredibly difficult to do. So kudos to all the parents that are doing it in a peaceful manner and trying to improve themselves. That's a tremendous task that one can do. And I like that you didn't try to justify it. You just said that it's really hard. You didn't say, therefore, it's justifiable. You just said it's hard, which is true. It's very hard to, if you slept two hours a day and you've been with a child for for hours like i've i've been around children and i have nephews and nieces and uh, i've been around children a lot and after five hours after two hours sometimes i feel drained and nothing happened i just played with them and then okay i can go home but if you're a parent you can't go home <laughs> yeah you go for a walk and the child is cranky and they're acting out and you're like okay how do you handle this but yeah. still if you know in the back of your mind that okay beating this child is is not an option. I have to be more creative. How do I resolve the situation? Yeah, I'm help you. And so I, one of the things I think that is different, perhaps for me as a parent than, uh, well, a, I, you know, I get less triggered, you know, much less triggered than I would have done if I'd have been having these children in, you know, my early 20s, right? So the, there's that element, I'm also much more empathetic and emotionally available and all of these things that come out for me doing the therapeutic work. But the other, the other thing is, of course, I do recognize now, okay, I was a bad parent in that moment, right? I wasn't empathetic. Um, I wasn't nurturing. You know, maybe I caused a micro trauma, right, in that moment, right? Yeah, quite possibly. Sure. But I, but I can go back to the chart, my child and say, hey, I, uh, you know, I apologize. I get that what I did there was wrong. I know that it made you upset. I'm sorry. And so that's, that's another tool I have in a way I probably wouldn't have had before this one. And that takes a lot of courage to recognize that you made a mistake, especially in that relationship where you have tremendous power. We see power dynamics in other environments like a boss and a employee. I mean, most bosses, well, I wouldn't say most bosses, but like a lot of bosses from what I've heard 
they're not very fond of accepting their mistakes. They usually tend to blame others. And a parent has a tremendous power, uh, power over a child. So for them to be humble and to accept that, okay, I made a mistake. Hey, little fella, I love you. I just I did what I did. How can I make up to you? Let's let's figure this out. That takes a lot of courage, and uh, that's what you can do. You can talk to the child about it, and we talked about uh, other examples where a child drops a lollipop or hurts their knee. That's what you can do. You can comfort the child and understand that okay, I'm not a dangerous person. I'm not a danger to you. I'm your caregiver. I want to help you. Sometimes I don't know how to do it. I I'm trying my best. I know it's used as an excuse in many cases. I did my best, but we all do our best. That's the problem. Our best is not always objectively the best, which is fine. But then you have to own own up to it and say that, okay, I made a mistake. How can I make it better? How can I not do it in the future? And be committed and and, uh, be a loving parent still. Yeah. Yeah. And which brings us to another point I thought we'd raise actually in this. Can in this I just talk. very quickly sure. make a very short point because I think that's uh, that's very useful. Sometimes people think that not abusing children means letting them do whatever they want, and that's not the case. And I make a an explicit point in my book because it might give a an impression to people that I'm just saying no, 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 you have to. If you do something and a child fronts or or feels uh, discontent it means you're abusing the child necessarily don't do this no you have to set boundaries that's uh again sometimes the need that a child has is something not as obvious and if they're acting out you need to set a boundary you need to set a certain standard for them a healthy standard and implement it in a healthy way again not by abusing them but sometimes it you have to show to them what is acceptable, what is unacceptable. And of course, you yourself have to be an example of that. You can't set different rules to a child that you yourself don't follow because that doesn't make sense. It makes you kind of uh, a hypocrite. So, But if you follow, for example, I've seen this. My, my brother does that with uh, his children. They have a rule. Nobody in the family yells at each other. And they don't yell at children, and therefore they can ask their children not to yell. And when they yell, they can remind the child, hey, we don't yell in this household. Look, mommy's not yelling, daddy's not yelling. So maybe you can communicate this in a different manner. I'm listening to you. Please just say it in a calm tone. We can talk about it. It's fine. So you can set a rule in that more uh, empathetic way, but it's still a boundary. Again, I don't mean that, okay, you, if you don't let the child yell or eat six candy bars in a row, then you're an abusive parent. No, that, that, that's not the case. Yeah. Well, in fact, in fact, you could argue it is abusive to not sure. set boundaries, right? Yeah. I mean, there's lots of, you know, you see lots of stories from, from kids who've been raised by hippies and, you know, that one of their big complaints is, you know, we, need, we didn't have boundaries and what we craved were boundaries, right? So I think yeah, it's important. Yeah, but you said you want to raise a different topic or a different. Oh point. yeah, so so this is so we've mentioned this. You know, we've mentioned Daniel Mackler a couple of times. In fact, I've asked him on onto the show and another very you know powerful communicator around this topic of trauma. And he has this stance, right? That and I the way I see it is this absolutist stance, and and maybe you have the same. I don't know. I, perhaps you do from the book, but um, 
this idea that we shouldn't embark on being a parent until we're until we're fully resolved i.e we've we've processed all of the, the way i say all of the trauma in our system before we become a parent now i chose to embark on being a parent and i knew that not all of my trauma was resolved right i'd done a, a lot of it and i was in a much healthier place when i became a dad but i'd not done all of it and my fear was I, well i have no idea how long this is going to take is it going to take me another 10 years another 20 years before you know i'm fully resolved at which point i'll be an old dad if in fact if i can even have kids at all is it better to be younger but less resolved or old <laughs> and fully resolved uh, uh, yeah so so i made the choice well i'm gonna i'm gonna declare myself good enough you know resolved enough despite the fact I know that there's still more work to do and I'm going to make, you know, I'm going to make the best of it, of it at this point in my lifetime. And that was a choice I made, you know, where are you in terms of this? Um, as a disclaimer, I myself don't have children. I don't have plans on having children anytime soon. Maybe it will change in the future. I'm not against it necessarily. Not that it matters what my personal experience is, but, uh, it's a very complicated question. I don't want to simplify it too much or reduce it uh, to black and white answers. Um, if we take Daniel's perspective, I don't know if he holds the same perspective today, but based on what you said, I've heard him saying that. So I agree he advocated for that in the past, at least. Empirically, I don't think that's very realistic, to be honest, because he himself said that in other, uh, I guess, talks or whatever, that uh, we can't realistically resolve all the trauma that we have. So therefore, the conclusion follows that we never can have children. So if that premise is true, then by his definition of that, uh, we can't have ever children because we have too much trauma and it's impossible to resolve all trauma to which i agree that it's impossible to resolve all the trauma but the question remains then what about having children is it okay to have children if we have trauma i mean i don't know what does it mean is it okay to have children well what does it mean i don't know it depends on your definition of morality on your definition of responsibility on other things that a person may personally hold and my my personal decision not to have children is partially because i still have trauma as all of us do but not just that so i don't know maybe if i had other factors figured out maybe i would want to have a child today maybe i wouldn't i don't know but uh in my book, I talk about reasons not to have children. And I think if a person goes through the list and figures out, okay, none of these reasons actually match my situation. I don't want a child just as an accessory. I don't want a child to project my own unmet needs and then kind of, I don't know, try to raise myself as my own child, or I don't want for my child to meet my needs. And I give other reasons in there, but 
if you're healthy enough, if you actually are committed, if you're prepared, a lot of people are unprepared. A lot of people just follow a so-called life scenario where they have to grow up, finish university, go to school. Uh, before that, finish university, uh, buy a home, uh, get married, go to work, retire and die, and that's it. They don't really think about it, don't really prepare, and that's another thing that uh, there's no preparation necessary. Anyone can have a child. There are no regulations, not that I'm for regulations necessarily, but uh, again, just as society, as we see child rearing, anyone can have a child. It's not prohibited. We need a license to drive a car. We don't need a license to have a child. And while the responsibility is tremendously higher when you have a child. So that's another problem that a lot of people are unprepared. But if you are committed to healing and you want to have a child, maybe, maybe you can be a decent parent. It's not impossible. I've seen parents who are pretty decent and they have a child and they, again, admit their mistakes and uh, still work on themselves. It's harder to do, again, if you sleep two hours a night and you have to take care of a child and just, I don't know, you don't have that much time to journal or go for a walk for two hours or something. It's difficult. But it doesn't mean that you're a crappy parent necessarily. Yeah. I don't know if I answered your question, but it's a complicated Yeah. I don't want to oversimplify your response, but something like it, I, I'm getting a couple of things out of that. One, one it depends, of course, on the context. Um, it sounds like you're not an absolutist, right? It, does, it sounds I to don't me think like so, you, no. you, yeah, you, you, just you, realistically looking at the situation, like it's impossible to have a child. And if you, if your premise is that you have to resolve all the trauma, because it's impossible to resolve all the trauma, so you never yeah. can have a child. And, but the other important point you're making there is that we should consider, as prospective parents, are we prepared for this child? Uh, yes Again, not, I don't not just to... from a practical perspective but from an emotional perspective yes or, and uh, i yeah. don't want to give a an impression that therefore it's okay for everyone to have a child for most people if we're really blunt it's they're not prepared they're they're not good parents a lot of them are but there there's also a lot of a lot of trauma going on so i don't know you have to be careful also you have yeah. to understand consciously what kind of a responsibility you're taking upon yourself and a lot of people as you said just monetarily just financially raising a child requires a lot a lot of people are unprepared um emotionally a lot of people are unprepared a lot of people haven't worked on their trauma at all and then they have a child what happens they project all the trauma into a child they transfer all the trauma into a child and they traumatize their child the same way like they were traumatized and they a lot of people raise their children to meet their needs. So there's a role reversal. A child becomes a parent in that relationship and the parent uh, expects for the child to meet their needs. And if they don't meet their needs, then they punish the child. Yeah. And I, I think there's another important point is that we, we, even with the best intentions, it's almost impossible for us not to pass on. That's a, why at I least say... a, a big quotient of the trauma that we experienced onto the next generation i mean there may be ways to mitigate that by just following certain good practices but nonetheless it's inescapable that some level of that traumatization will get passed on right yes that's why it's a task could be to resolve as much trauma as you can again we'll 
still have to live our lives. Even if you don't have a child, uh, you still have to interact with the world. You can't just lock in yourself into a room for like seven years and just journal. I would I wouldn't recommend that. And then you go into a society as a healthy society member, and I don't know. That's not how it works. You still need to encounter certain situations. Actually, that's a a part of the process. You need to encounter situations that are triggering to you that. Uh, make you feel uncomfortable and deal with them from yeah. that different perspective that you gained when you worked on yourself. And it's kind of a spiral. I like that metaphor. Somebody somebody said that. I don't know who exactly, but I posted a quote by a certain person. They said that healing is a spiral. So you encounter the same or similar situation over and over again, but every time it's easier and easier and over time you kind of, it doesn't bother you anymore, but it requires a lot of repetition, a lot of putting yourself into a similar situation until you resolve it and doing it consciously. It could be repetition compulsion, but if it's healthy, if you're actually working, for example, if you're afraid of people, you have social anxieties and you want to overcome it, you need to interact with people. You can't just sit in your room for seven years and then you just get out and you don't get triggered by people anymore. That's not yeah. how it works. I think that's really important. And, and of course, there's room for both. I think there is room for some level of cocooning, some level oh, of, of self or, or, or isolation to the work. But then you've got to get get out there. And um, as a previous guest on the show, actually, John Williams talks about, you've got to go out and stir the pot, right? You've got to, you've got to go and put yourself in the, in the, in the uh, triggering situation uh, to, to allow yourself to observe your responses and deal with any... Uh, feelings and ancient feelings that might get uh, triggered by that yeah so it's very very important and i and i think this pertains also to this question about what do we do in terms of the relationship between the with those who may have traumatized us in the past right and do we do we completely detach you know if we think of stefan molyneux he talks about the defooing right do we 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 move or completely detach ourselves from our family of origin if they was those indeed were the ones that traumatized us um or do we continue to engage? Now I've made the choice to, no, I'm going to go back. I'm going to continue. I'm going to work on establishing boundaries, maintaining boundaries, develop myself in the context of that relationship, as opposed to uh, completely detaching from it. I mean, uh, and that may not be the choice that's right for everyone, but of course there's, there's a lot to be said, I think, for continuing to engage. Now you might have to change the frequency or the intensity, or, you know, but, but keeping that link can be a powerful one for healing. I actually have an article on that because it's a very common question, as you can imagine. Uh, everyone, more or less, who starts working on themselves, they have to ask themselves that question. So it's very common. But the answer is it depends. I mean, again, there's no black and white answer. It depends on your goals. What do you want from that relationship? And then what, what I suggest people to do is figure out what exactly you want from that relationship and then evaluate your options. Sometimes it's impossible to have a healthy relationship with your parents, with other uh, authority figures in your life. But a lot of people are okay with having a limited relationship. They know that in this relationship, this and that will happen, undoubtedly but they're okay with it. That's the price they want to pay to maintain that relationship because they get something back. 
that's another question that you can ask. What am I getting from that relationship? Is it just some unresolved trauma that I have? Like uh, I want a loving mom, I want a loving dad, and I still unconsciously maintain that relationship so that I could maintain that fantasy that I will one day have that unconditionally loving parent, which is unrealistic, but a lot of people have that. Or do I actually get some healthy things from it? And that unhealthy part is surprise that I pay for those things that I get. If there's nothing that you get, then I don't know. You have to make a decision. If Well, a logical conclusion is that that relationship is unnecessary or unhealthy. But if you get certain things and these things are better than the negative things that you're getting, there's value in that relationship. You can maintain it. And if there's only positive things, then there's not even a question. So it depends on your particular situation, on your goals. But uh, I can imagine scenarios where people can have a relationship with their parents. And even if it's not particularly healthy, they can get some value out of it. And you mentioned other authority figures, but people listening to this in a work context, I think they can say that be be said of bosses. I mean, I read a report recently. Is it sixty um, percent of people would um, would rather move to a different job um, with with the same or or less money than stay with the current boss, right? Because that relationship is so awful and. There's another example, right? If you're in a process where you're you were where you're healing and you're working on when you're getting triggered, then actually staying in a relationship with the boss might be the best thing you can do. Because if you learn to assert yourself and set appropriate boundaries in that relationship, um, that that could be more important for your growth than, than simply moving on. Um, I guess it again depends on your it, of course, it depends situation. Yeah. It could affect you negatively in many different ways. It could not affect you negatively for example if your boss messes up your career and gives you a bad reference or makes so that you can't work anywhere in your field anymore or whatever it depends on who your boss is how much power they have there are many factors but just generally if it's just a i don't know a narcissistic boss which happens quite often um it could be valuable to stay it could be valuable to leave sometimes people can't leave. It's very difficult to leave because it's difficult to find a different job. I've had a lot of clients who work in, for example, uh, uh, a service profession or retail. It's sort of a low type of a position. Not to demean it, but just factually, it's, it's not a high position. And their management is really horrible. And I've heard those stories very, very often. And as always, I ask them, okay, what are your options? What can you do? Because I can't tell people what to do. I don't think anybody should tell people what to do unless it's a completely abusive situation. But if it's situations like that, then you can show the person their options help them figure out what their options are, what their priorities are. For some people, being around decent people is the highest priority. I'm the same way. I can't live in an environment where people are horrible. For example, if I had loud neighbors, for example, I would move. 
other people might go fight with the neighbors, call the police, whatever. And eventually, if nothing changes, I would just move. Other people may not. I don't know. So it depends on the individual. But uh, uh, as you said, for some people, it could be beneficial to set healthier boundaries. In certain situations, it may not be possible to set healthier boundaries. You do it and nothing changes. So then at some point, you have to make a decision. Do I want to? At that point, that option is gone. So you only have either I'm accepting that this is the situation and I'm staying or I have to leave. So it depends on the person's situation. But as you said, it could be beneficial to stay. It could be beneficial to go, but it depends. Sorry, I can't give a blank. No, this is wise, wise advice. And clearly, uh, as a result of uh, many clients you've experienced in this type of situation, but of course, it depends and exploring the options is, is important. Again, if I had a specific person, that's why I love uh, working with people one-on-one. I tend to avoid giving interviews or, or going on podcasts because I don't know the audience and there are many people in the audience. And if I talk to somebody individually, I can empathize with them and help them individually. It's difficult to do it talking to a camera, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. But the other thing that comes to mind here is there's, a, there's perhaps a broader point. Um, and I was listening to somebody with a TED talk yesterday, uh, uh, talking about you know trauma and, uh, one of the ways she thinks that society could improve um, is by um, sort of encouraging r- relational therapy skills in police men and women, in teachers, in social workers, right? So, so creating an environment where people or a society where people are trauma aware and we start to es- equip them with the skills to have therapeutic conversations. Uh, and that that seemed to be like a very concrete and sort of feasible suggestion for what we might take up. But I, but what she didn't talk about was doing that in the workplace. And of course, where I spend a lot of my time is in is in businesses in the workplace. And I think we could extend that to the workplace and start to equip managers with uh, well, I mean, just and, and employees in general with the skills to have therapeutic type conversations where we help others identify their feelings, where we uh, help others potentially to, ex- to ex- explore what in the past may contribute to them having been triggered in a particular situation. That, that seems to me like a, a, a good suggestion. Um, sure. Ideally, it makes sense. Um, from what I've heard from many of my clients is that the management, it's not just one person who is uh, being abusive. It's the the environment, like the higher environment. Like the higher you go, the more dysfunctional it goes or it's the same level of dysfunction. And if you're in an organization where the top people are dysfunctional or abusive, I don't know if there's much that you can do. Just like, I don't know, if you go to a Facebook group and the moderator is uh, an abusive person, I don't know what you can do in there. If the main person is the person with the most power is dysfunctional. I don't know if there's a lot of value in staying in that group and staying in that organization. But if the leader is a healthy person and well, then the question is why do they have managers and upper managers who are dysfunctional? Why do they hire people like that? It doesn't quite make sense. So oftentimes the managers are dysfunctional because the boss is dysfunctional and they specifically hire dysfunctional people because they want dysfunctional people to 
they maybe don't see it as dysfunctional, but they, for example, want somebody to bully their employees to work harder because they want more money, better results, whatever. So then the broader question could be raised, why do we have organizations like that? Some people say it's capitalism, other people say different things, but that's a broader question. But uh, ideally, that would be a great idea to teach people in workplaces uh, about uh, emotional management, about uh, trauma, about uh, better relationships, about empathy, about all these things that would help tremendously if the organization wanted that. Well, of course, yeah. So I guess the main goal would be to convince the leaders of organizations that this would benefit your organization, which it would. You said it yourself, most people or a lot of people would move even if it uh, will give them less money versus staying in a dysfunctional environment. And uh, I've read some, I don't know if it was an article or a study, but money is not the biggest motivator. People value freedom to do what they want in their work environment uh, work-wise, like having creativity and not having uh, people kind of uh, helicopter over them and just doing what they want and having some free time and having a healthier environment, good relationships uh, with their coworkers versus having a lot of money. Money is a motivator, but it's not a top motivator for a lot of people at least. That's right. And of course, one of the, the buzz topics right now, and we've had several guests on the podcast talk about it, is this idea of psychological safety, and that being a very important factor in team performance. And these skills are of course, highly pertinent to, to psychological safety. If people want to feel heard, and feel like it, feel it safe for them to contribute, then people having these relational skills are really important. Yeah. I just read recently that people are starting to teach uh, empathy classes in school. I don't remember where, maybe Denmark or some Scandinavian country, I don't remember, but uh, in some schools, they're starting to teach empathy, which is a novel idea that's very good to to have in your classroom. Yeah. So we could implement the same thing in a work environment. Yeah, yeah. Um, So finally, I'd like to, before we we end this, just, we talked about solutions. Let's 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 talk a little bit about, about sure. solution for our solution hungry audience. Uh, so you you've written you've written the self work starter kit, uh, and in there you've got twelve. What do we call them? Tools uh, for people who want to work on themselves. Maybe not touch on all twelve of them. Which 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 of those twelve have you found most powerful for yourself or for your clients where would you direct people to begin with so actually i wrote this thing more like a book booklet um i have a draft of like a proper book i need to work on it more i have like five drafts future books but uh, one of them is actually solutions how can we heal more efficiently what are helpful tools but i wanted to give like a shorter version of it so that people could have some tools that they could work with um journaling is the first that comes to mind actually writing on paper how you feel what your thoughts are uh trying to resolve your traumas and understanding the reasons why you have the problems that you have today how they connect to your past experiences your early environment and your early relationships and your current relationships just 
figuring out what's going on in your psyche. That's very valuable. You don't have to write it down necessarily. Other people prefer recording themselves uh, in an audio format or even a video format and listening to it later. But the goal is to record your thoughts, record your inner processes in a certain manner that can help you tremendously. Um, what helps me a lot, helped in the past, helps still if I'm overwhelmed, just going for a walk, being in nature, just being with myself. We talked a little bit, you, men, you brought it up. Uh, not isolation, uh, solitude, I guess, would be a better word. To kind of be with yourself, be with your thoughts, because we spend a lot of time as a society around people. It doesn't have to be like around people physically, but like on social media, we, our thought processes, our inner life is impacted tremendously by other people's thoughts, other people's emotions. We consume a lot of uh, nonsense from social media, from entertainment, from work, from anywhere. A lot of people have little to no time to themselves to actually clear their head to take a break to just figure out what I'm thinking, what are my thoughts, what are my, not morals, but I guess values in life. Uh, yeah, stuff like that. As I said, I started with that, I guess. What are my values? Honesty and empathy and uh, generosity and curiosity, stuff like that. Figuring out what I value and then following those values. Uh, figuring out how the world works. So for that, I, I spend a lot of time uh, studying, self-studying, I guess, philosophy and uh, logic and argumentation, stuff like that. So uh, I have a degree in philology, which is a fancy way of saying I understand how language works, <laughs> per se. Not a specific language, but just a language as such. Uh, so understanding how to codify our thoughts, our experiences in a coherent manner that can help you significantly to understand how the world works because what is an insane person a person who is detached from reality so if you want to be saner i guess sane eventually but saner than you are today you need to figure out how to conceptualize the world in a logical concise consistent coherent manner and understand what you feel, what other people are going through, what the world is, what's real, what's not real today. We have a lot of problems because people don't even know what real is. People live in a, in a delusion, I would say, a mass delusion. But uh, just figuring out what's real, that's a big task for a lot of people. So having tools to do that, that can be helpful. Um, so solitude can be helpful. Again, not to isolate yourself in a cabin somewhere for seven years, but just having some regular time for yourself to to clear your head, to revitalize your inner process. Um, as the opposite of that, in some ways, trying to have at least a few friends, at least one friend, somebody, again, an enlightened witness, or just a person that you can be open and honest with and feel safe around, just that helped to me. Uh, that helped me to have uh, when I found a decent friend. A lot of people say they have friends, but I use the word the word friend in a very specific manner. It's a person that you have a close and open relationship with emotionally. You know who this person is. They know who you are, and you can talk about deep 
things together and you feel accepted and safe. And most people don't have that. Some people have one or two friends and that's a lot. Uh, but if you can have that, that can help you a lot. That's what helped me a lot because just having somebody who listens to you, who validates your thoughts if you need that, who validates your emotions, who challenges you sometimes, uh, you need that in life. And that can help you significantly to resolve your traumas. Um, what else? Um, having proper rest. A lot of people are overworked and overwhelmed by life in general. A lot of people have to work low low-paying jobs and be in very stressful environments for a lot of time. Um, instead of choosing disassociative tools to relax, you could choose healthier tools. Again, going for a walk, being in nature, talking to a friend, having a proper sleep schedule, eating properly, exercising once in a while, just having a healthier lifestyle to relax your body to deal with that overwhelm that you accumulate in your daily life. Yeah. One of the things I like reading the, the self-work starter kit was this, uh, you specifically ask people to write down what they find relaxing, which is something yes. I've never done. And I must admit, I, I want to do that exercises just to see it in black and white. Okay. What is it that I really enjoy to relax and get, get that concrete in my mind? And then how, and then of course the next question is how do I do more of that? And with my clients, I usually ask them, okay, what helps you relax? Because for some people, it's listening to music. Other people hate listening to music. They want to watch a movie or, I don't know, listen to a podcast or something. So I tend to not to tell people what to do. I tend to ask people and help them realize what they find useful, what they find helpful, what they value, and help them achieve that. Yeah. One of the things I was surprised not to see on the list perhaps was this <clears throat> or certainly what's helped for me is is the conscious and active attempt to relive or revisit the past traumatizing experience um to engage with that early pain oh uh that's kind of hmm. okay so as i said this is more like a booklet so if i mentioned that then i would at least I would feel that I need to explain what it is, how to do it, and that you can't do it in like one or two paragraphs. At least I can't. Maybe somebody else could, but uh, I deliberately try to choose more practical, I guess, ways, more easily implementable ways how to work on yourself. And that didn't make the list, to be honest. That doesn't mean it's not important. I would say that's the most important thing or one of the most important things, but it's it's more like why I didn't mention therapy or self therapy in a in a in a more i guess significant way i maybe I mentioned it briefly, I don't know, but like I would need to explain what it is, okay, what is self therapy what is therapy what is emotional work it requires a lot of uh background to to be able for just a regular person to understand what it is, what it, what does it include? How do you emotionally work on yourself? That could require to write like seven pages to just explain that. So I tried to kind of, okay, go for a walk. That's very attainable. You can do that. Get a good night's sleep. That's attainable. But okay, well, how do I relive my past experiences? I need to write like two pages for that. That's how I felt at least. 
Okay, no, okay, that makes sense. And interesting, you put that as, as, as do you maybe want to the... expand on that. Like, what? Do well, you mean I by think that it's I for think... your listeners. Well, for my listeners, so for me, it would it would seem to be an omission in all of this conversation to not, I suppose, refer to, I suppose, the. Yeah, I suppose the central activity of healing, <laughs> and that ultimately has us resolve these issues uh it, it has us feel that acute pain which we referred to early earlier but it also has us ultimately alleviate the suffering that we experience in our day-to-day lives and so you know even if we can't tell people how to do it on this podcast yeah maybe it's valuable to refer to the nature of that process okay so how i see self-work i just define it as self-work or self-archaeology but for people who don't know what self-archaeology is, it's just self-work or therapy, self-therapy, whatever, self-exploration, healing. It's a similar process. Uh, it's a part of it, what, what you mentioned. So reliving your past experiences is a part of it. But maybe I can talk a little bit more about how I see healing in general. Or would you like to just uh, stay on this particular thing? Well, yeah, I suppose maybe you're, we're actually teasing into here two slightly different perspectives, which which I think is which is great. So maybe, maybe both. Maybe there's a bit about healing in general, and then specifically about this this reliving point. Okay, so as I see healing, healing happens on three levels. At least that's how I found it helpful to perceive. So one is intellectual. So you work on your beliefs, on the messages that you got when you were growing up, the beliefs that you have right now about yourself, about your parents, about the world, about you work on the intellectual level. So if you find some beliefs that you know are not true, for example, I'm a bad person, I'm worthless, I'm uh, unlovable, something like that. Clearly, it's not a accurate belief but a lot of people have those beliefs so working on those people are dangerous all men are dangerous or all women are dangerous whatever clearly unreasonable or irrational beliefs they don't reflect reality they you can understand why you have them probably because in the past for example a man or many men hurt you or many women hurt you therefore you kind of internalize that and made a generalization that all people that resemble those people who hurt me are bad, are evil, are dangerous, are horrible, whatever. But when you start working on yourself, you can see that, okay, this is unreasonable. So I need to let go of that belief, resolve it, which is a difficult task. And it includes going back to those instances and feeling those emotions that you felt when that initially happened and if you resolve those you wouldn't feel that way how you feel right now that's i think what you're talking about so i don't think we have different perspectives it's just i wanted to talk about the healing process on a broader scale which includes what you said uh then there's the emotional level which is what we just talked about so you work on your emotions you try to figure out how you feel you learn new methods how to deal with your emotions you try to go back and uh, resolve your emotions you try to again dig deeper and figure out what emotions are repressed what do they mean 
letting yourself feel those emotions, learning how to deal with them in a healthier way. And then the third one is behavioral. So on the action level, you do things. So for example, if you are afraid of people, have social anxieties, maybe you can socialize more. Maybe if you are afraid of calling people, maybe you can pick up a phone and call five people and that's your task for the day. I don't know if you are disorganized, if you have poor self-care, maybe you can uh, develop a schedule where you have a routine where it gives you more predictability, more structure, more consistency in life. So practical things. So if you combine all those things that I mentioned, all those realms, intellectual, emotional, and practical, and again, it involves all sorts of things. I just wanted to talk about it in a very general way, but you can... Uh, categorize, I guess, all healing tools, all all traumas, everything in those three categories, and work on those uh, from that perspective. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, if I were to give primacy to any of those, I would certainly put reliving and feeling that old pain. Uh, yeah, that's certainly been my experience, right? I guess you know, for others, it may be different, but. Uh... And also, I, th I find that I can almost use it as a defense mechanism, working on behaviors and in, I suppose, conceptual perspective or something, um, intellectual processes as a way to avoid the most, often the most painful activity, at least. Oh, for a lot of people, it is. Yeah. I've had a lot of clients. I did it myself, I guess, to a certain degree in the past. I've known a lot of people in my personal life who did it. Uh, it's a paradox. So, People who are more intellectual or I wouldn't say smarter, but I guess uh, who like to think about things, let's put it this way. The problem sometimes is that they also are better at inventing defense mechanisms. Their defense mechanisms are more uh, sophisticated. So for somebody who is a very primitive person, very emotional, very uh, unresolved, their basic uh, defense mechanism is denial didn't happen i'm not doing this everything's great if you're more sophisticated you will conceptualize what's going on in you in a way that kind of makes sense to you there's an internal logic and it's a very sophisticated process you have all these theories and conclusions and premises and they kind of connect and it makes sense but it's a defense mechanism so that you wouldn't access your emotions because thinking about emotions is hard. And I've had clients who, for example, I asked them, okay, how do you feel about this? And they give me a long story with no emotions, just an intellectual explanation. Okay, this happened and this happened because of this. And then this person did that, but then this happened and then I did that. And then this connects to that. And then it's like, okay, okay, stop, stop, stop. How do you feel? What happened? Just Tell me about your feelings. And oftentimes people can't talk about their feelings. That's another problem. That's another tool that can help have if you have problems uh, recognizing your emotions. You can Google, you can print out emotional inventory, list of emotions that you can go through and say, okay, do I feel fear? Do I feel anger? Do I feel elation? Do I feel joy? Do I feel curiosity? What, what fits my situation? Because oftentimes... People either say, I don't know how I feel, or they are able to say it in a very prim primitive way, which is, I feel good, or I feel bad, which is a good start. But if you're more specific, that can help you resolve your problems better. 
Yeah. And actually that was, you've reminded me, I think one of the most powerful points in your, your self-work booklet was the, the, the point you make about self-responsibility. And a lot of people understand self-ownership or self-responsibility in terms of I own my mistakes. I take responsibility for my actions and the consequences of my actions. That's, that's, I think, a fairly common understanding of it. But you extend it to say it's also about owning your feelings. Yes. And certainly for me, go on, sorry. Oh, no, I just wanted to quickly add not only owning your feelings, but also owning your accomplishments for a lot of people. That's also difficult. Exactly. And and owning your your virtues and your accomplishments and uh, your needs and your wants. But but the, the pertinent point there for me was this point about feelings. And maybe for me, because early on, I, I certainly had the owning my mistakes and my failures down. I was n- nowhere near owning my feelings. And it's, it's interesting you talk about the inventory because I can remember in my early days going to 12-step groups when I was dealing with my addictions and people would ask at the end of the meeting, you know, okay, now share your feelings. And I'd hear people share my fe- their feelings. I'd be like, what do you mean? I, I mean, I'm fine. Like I, 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 it was, it was so difficult for me to even conceptualize how I might approach really describing a feeling that that inventory point is very powerful. One, I, I went to one of the groups I attended, they literally gave you a printout, an acetate sheet, and you could only pick from, from sentences which said, I feel X, and you had to pick one. And that was such a simple and powerful process for me to begin with, you know, when I started to get to, to, to approach this this work and i think there are a lot of theories which as i described realm is the most important i don't think it's very useful to kind of fight about which one is it behavioral is it intellectual is it emotional i think it's necessary to uh, work on all of them but i've heard people say that no the intellectual is the most important because the way you conceptualize the world impacts your emotions but then others say, no, 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 the emotions, uh, I guess, uh, impact or, or that's the core of uh, how you think. Uh, others say, no, no, how you act, uh, where you are in life physically, that's what impacts your uh, emotions and your thoughts. So I don't know if it's really helpful to say, no, no, this one thing is the core of it and you just work on this one thing and everything's great. Uh, all of them have their own purposes and... Well, I, well I, all of them can be very helpful. Well, I have heard the ra- one rationale for the, for the primacy of the emotional work is that the way that we form thoughts in the brain, the signal starts from the emotional centers, yeah. not from, not from the, the frontal cortex. So the thoughts, from this perspective at least, is, is simply an outward expression of, of a process which started in the emotional centers you know, in the brain. Uh, and so for that reason, if we, if, if we really want to work at the source, we, we have to go to, to that activity in the brain and not start with the, the thinking process. Yeah, I've heard this theory. And I, again, personally, I think I would lean towards your position that emotional work is the most important work. And I've talked about it in the past. But just from a more detached, I guess, general perspective i would think that all of them are more important and i could even give you like a counter argument for example if a person believes that they're a bad person well from that belief you can have a lot of emotions even though nothing's going on you just sit and think okay i'm a bad person and that creates certain emotions or you go outside and something happens and you have a thought and that thought creates certain emotions 
Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with you. But if I were working with somebody and that was their predicament, I wouldn't start with the emotions that emanated from the I'm bad person. Yeah. I would start with, okay, when did you first experience something sure. where you had that thought? And then try to use that as an access into the emotions. But hey, that's so the most oh. useful, I guess, conception that I use is that I say that emotions and thoughts impact your behavior. So how you feel and how you think impacts how you act. I try not to not to separate too much or not to say that this one thing, if you worked on this one, but if I had to choose, I would probably choose the emotional part because okay. that's where all the trauma is. That's unresolved emotions from which I think stem the beliefs that we have. But also like if a person is completely detached from reality, or not completely, but I guess have some, uh, unreasonable beliefs then they need to work on that too just resolving the emotions i don't think that would be sufficient that would resolve some trauma but a lot of it because a lot of people are just in general they don't know about uh, uh, argumentation and logic and how to describe the world properly they might emotionally be resolved and calm but in some ways they're just not very reasonable people mm. okay does that make sense? It does make sense what you said, and I'm aware okay. that this could be another podcast in itself. So uh, maybe uh, we've, uh, we've sure. done that just that point justice. Okay, thank you, Darius, so much for your time. It's been a wonderful conversation. Uh, perhaps what remains is to let people know where where they can find you. So tell tell people where they can find you online. Um, selfarchaeology.com is my main website from there you can find other information about me and about my work uh, on Facebook my page is selfarchaeology on YouTube selfarchaeology other than that I post uh, photos on Instagram which is unrelated to self work it's just something that I do to share my I guess daily life and my traveling experiences with the world and some people find that amusing so if you like that you can follow me there too excellent all right well oh and if you feel incredibly generous you can become a patreon on patreon.com slash self-archaeology which i don't expect but if you want to that would be great awesome okay thanks again uh thank you so much for having me no it's, it's been a pleasure uh thank you very much indeed and goodbye see ya the Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.